So actually, you know, the preamble of the talk is actually part of the beginning of the talk in that this is how we create um, our, our home together. Um, there was an article in the New York Times about the experience in meditation retreats for some of you who are newer to it. And the writer writes, meditation retreats at this place, which is not this one, by the way, but um, might be similar, are no picnic. You don't follow your bliss. You learn not to follow your bliss. You learn this arduously. If at the end of the day you feel, if at the end you feel that you're leaving Shangri-La, it's because the beginning felt like Guantanamo. We spent five and a half hours a day in sitting meditation, five and a half hours a day in walking meditation, of which our schedule has only four hours and 15 minutes. So maybe you think that's lucky. On day three, I was feeling achy, far from nirvana, and really, really sick of the place. I didn't like the morning yogi job, vacuuming. I don't like the vegetarian food. And I wasn't particularly fond of all those Buddhists with those self-satisfied looks on their faces, walking serenely around like they knew something that I didn't know. Which it turns out they did. What I hated above all was that I wasn't succeeding as a meditator. Now I know you're not supposed to think of succeeding at meditating and you're not supposed to blame yourself for failing. And blah, blah, blah. It's those last three words that I use this story for because, you know, it's so interesting that this beautiful place in which every need is taken care of, right? The food, the accommodations, the schedule, which we hope you're following, all of that and it reduces a professional writer to using blah, blah, blah. This is, this is how we get to see our mind clearly. This is how we get to see as the, as the distractions fall away, we get to see how the mind works. We see more clearly what is usually hidden in our lives sort of making the invisible visible. And really, that's all this practice is about around um, the exploration of the breath and the body that Bhante introduced us to. How often do you think about your breath during the day? How often do we pay attention to something that is so fundamental in our life that it actually gives the energy to our life? How often do you think about your ability to ambulate and move in the world? You probably don't, at least I don't, until I experience an injury, until there's an impairment that, that, that arises. And then I know how precious this body is. So mindfulness is, is actually turning the attention to that phrase that we opened the retreat with, how precious this life is. 24 hours of mindfulness is more precious than a hundred years without it. And we tend not to value the preciousness of this life because we're constantly manipulating it we're constantly reflexively reacting to it. And what are we reacting to? When something we don't like arises, we push it away. When something we like arises, we want more of it. And when something that is neutral, that we don't have much interest, our attention just falls away. All of that is not simply meeting the moment for what it is. It's this push-pull back and forth. And we're actually manipulating and changing the present moment. 
instead of simply as a moment arises, just touching it with our awareness, simply meeting it and exploring what is this life that's arising? So often we think we should be living a certain kind of experience or a certain kind of life. And then what we are actually doing is living a thought and not actually our reality. This is when thought becomes reality. It's not about the magical thinking about, thinking about a, I don't know, a, a car and it manifests. It's that the thinking process itself becomes our reality and not the, rea not the direct experience itself. And so the invitation in the morning sessions that will unfold from the breath to the body, to emotions and thoughts and, and, um, and feelings, is really just to strengthen this capacity that we inherently have of just being with the experience as it is. So that we can be with the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows that occur in each of our life, that occur in every life. There is no life that has only the joys or only the sorrows. Mindfulness is this, is this awareness that is so gentle. You know, just, so I'm a visual person, so that's why I use my hands a lot. But, you know, this meeting, it's not, it's, it's not pushing or pulling, it's simply touching. And this, this aspect of mindfulness is kindness. And so that's why the practice that Anushka introduced in the afternoon is so important to cultivate as a specific practice, but also to say that mindfulness in and of itself is a practice of kindness. Paying attention. You know, many of you I know are parents, but even if you have not been parents, I've not been a parent, but I actually have grandchildren and I know this. But we know this from our own experience as children that you can tell a kid that you love them, but if you're not paying attention, if you're not offering them that energy of your attention, they know it and they don't feel that love. Our capacity to pay attention is our capacity to love. And that's what this retreat is about. It's paying attention to our lives, all of our lives, so that we leave nothing behind. That, that we can pay attention and appreciate the entire range, not just a self-selected range. Oh, I, this is the only part of my life that I like. But that I can appreciate all of my life. The more that you're able to create this capacity to be aware of your own experience, the more that you are deeply loving yourself. It is not this saccharine romantic love that, you know, is so predominant in our culture. It is a deep acceptance of who you are. We look for love in so many external places. You know, that, that song, we look for love in so many places and so many faces. And really the capacity to love is, is right here with all of us. And as we practice, as we 
stay with the breath or the sensations of the body, of course the mind will wander, judgments will arise, you know, discomfort will arise. And the invitation, again, is simple, but it's, you know, it's also complex. Is even if judgment were to arise, is it possible not to judge the judgment? Because in that action, you're actually dissolving the pattern of judgment. It may feel even counterintuitive, but you're actually not fueling the fire. You're beginning to extinguish it. Loving kindness, that, uh, the description that, that, that Anushka gave of metta, is, is so woven into mindfulness. You know, it includes, in, in, in being mindful, there is that generosity of giving yourself to the present moment, of giving your full awareness to your experience. It is an aspect of letting go and forgiveness that you are letting go of each moment that passes, staying present. You're not, you're not dwelling in the future. Um, my, uh, uh, one of my teachers in Thailand, um, when I was practicing in Thailand, said that um, there is no difference between mindfulness and loving kindness. And this came up really strongly for me um, because uh, some of you know my husband, Stephen, and he had, um, he had this he had this acute rheumatoid arthritis he still does but it was acute a couple of years ago such that he was his his pain became not just chronic but acute in his right hip and he was he kept putting off a hip replacement and it was debilitating and it is i mean i cannot only imagine what the pain was doing to him internally but for you can imagine seeing someone you dearly love in pain that doesn't go away, that you can't do anything about, is also painful. And it, and it, and it you know, affected all aspects of our relationship because it was always there. And what I remember from this teaching that my teacher gave me was, was the invitation can I be aware of his pain in the way, in a way that he could not, because it was flooding his experience? And so um, at night, I would just massage his hip, trying to be with this pain in the best way that I could, knowing that, that I couldn't do anything about it. And what was, you know, what I got after a few times I did that was he always fell asleep. He always fell asleep. It didn't make the pain go away, but it always fell asleep. And that was enough. That ability to be with the pain actually taught me how can I be with pain that arises in that way, with that severity? Can I be with my own experience in the same way that I was with his? And the practice doesn't ask us to dive into the deep end. So the invitation, even in our sessions during retreat, is to start with this practice we call the itch. Because it's a universal phenomena. You know, the body gets a little uncomfortable. And there are these sensations that arise. And what do we usually do? We scratch. And why do we scratch? To make it go away. Because we don't like it. What would it be like 
to live through the experience as opposed to make it go away. Because there is another side of the itch. It's just that you'll never know it unless you be with the experience. And you know that it's not going to kill you and it's not going to last forever. So what's the big deal? It's actually a beautiful way to practice because the template is not about never scratching an itch. That's not the practice. The practice is how many uncomfortable feelings in your life do you try to make go away? Whether it's about your job, whether it's about a relationship, whether it's about you know, getting cut off on the highway. How many experiences do we just repress or deny as opposed to live through to the other side? Pulu Sayadaw, who um, um, is a Burmese, was a Burmese uh, uh, meditation teacher that started many of the centers in, 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 on the West Coast, said, if you know it, meaning suffering, it will break. If you don't know it, it will go round and round. And that's the cycle of reactivity. If you know it, even discomfort is not an obstacle to freedom. But if we aren't aware of the experience, we will be caught in thinking freedom's not possible. So, uh, you know, this, these trainings of mindfulness is, are suffusing in so many areas of our culture there's um, it's it's really big in psychology and education it's actually um, also um, has a has a um, in uh, growing influence in our military um, and so mindfulness trainings are being offered to veterans returning from deployment and um, this was an article um, about one of them. One, a veteran of several deployments uh, to Iraq, said he was out at dinner the previous night when a customer at a nearby table said he and his friends were being obnoxiously loud. The vet said, at one time, maybe I would have thrown the guy out the window and gone for the jugular. But guided by the new techniques, he fought the temptation and decided to buy the man a beer instead. Later, the guy came over and apologized. These trainings of our mind and heart are creating a new pattern for our lives. And there is a something quite profound, even though it sounds so simplistic, about noticing the impulse and not needing to act on it noticing what arises and being with it as opposed to that reflexive, reflexive reactivity of just jumping at it. It's actually a really highly evolved state of our human condition. There's no other species that can do it, noticing the impulse and not needing to act on it. And that is what the vet is able to bring back to a situation like Iraq. This is where the practice is not just about our individual contentment or peace of mind, but it begins to affect communities. It begins to affect our relationship to the world. So as you, you settle into this retreat, as you, as you allow the mind to settle, you know, there is a clarity that arises. And again, I am so visual, so I usually bring this, this prop, that this is about this, you know, the size of my brain. 
And usually when we're living in life, this is what the brain looks like. Because it's so active. We're doing so many things. We hold so much in our lives. And so what happens when we begin to settle? What happens when the you know, particles of our thoughts and our experiences that we just begin to let go and settle? We begin to see a little bit more clearly. And the more that we're able to do this, the more even the subtle you know, particles begin to settle and there's even greater clarity. One of the clarity, one clarity that I would like to address is this clarity of intention. It's one of the reasons why I invited you into that question. What is your intention coming into the retreat? What is our intention in living this precious life? Intention is part of the Eightfold Path, which is part of the Four Noble Truths, the core teaching of the Buddha. And, and the word, even the word intention, intention is actually related to the word tennis. And both of them have a Sanskrit root, which means to stretch, to stretch and to hold. So it is about directing your mind's attention to stretch and hold. Intend can also be experienced as tending the inner self, tending to yourself, paying attention, using these qualities of mindfulness and kindness to pay attention. One of the, one of the images in, in our teachings is that our whole life is balanced on this razor sharp sword of intention. It could go one way or the other, depending upon how we incline our heart. So, for example, if I give you a gift, I can be giving you a gift because I want something from you. I can be giving you a gift because I am so grateful for something that's happened between us. Or I can be giving you a gift because I just want to give you a gift unconditionally. These are three different experiences. It looks the same. The behavior looks the same. And that's why, you know, this razor sharp sword, and that's why identifying our intention is so important. What's your intention on coming into retreat? The intention may be to experience some relaxation. It may be a vacation. It may be to explore your heart and your mind. And there may be an intention to aspire to freedom. These are all very different experiences. Which one benefits you the most? If we don't start with our highest intentions, we actually may never manifest that, that place of aspiration. If we don't start with the in, initial intention of kindness, we may not be able to create those conditions. So Mahakosananda was one of the masters um, uh, of our lifetime. Um, he died in the early 80s, but um, he was um, uh, 
um, he was the um, beacon of practice in Cambodia, especially during the devastating historical times around the killing fields and and um, that that country's holocaust. Um, and his people were fraught with trauma and um, violence and war for m- decades. And his main teaching can be sort of, this is in his book, Step by Step. The thought manifests as the word. The word manifests as the deed. The deed develops into habit and habit hardens into character. Character gives birth to destiny. So watch your thoughts with care. Let it spring from love, born out of respect for all beings. This is why our intention, our initial intention is so important in the world that we would see that we would like to create. And you also can see from his words how all these practices are are interwoven and interrelated. Mindfulness and loving kindness and intention. You go through one and you actually see all all the teachings. And it might feel really difficult to you know, considering how harsh the world is these days, not to match that, that harshness in our life, that that's the conditioned pattern that, that um, Anishka was, was referring to, the, the energy, meeting energy with energy, hatred with hatred, which is never the solution. And to acknowledge how deep this conditioning is, you know, it goes back at least to, um, you know, the, the Assyrian stele that, that, that Hammurabi um, wrote, you know, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. It is a deeply conditioned state of reactivity that we are actually beginning to dissolve. That the work that we do, again, is not just about our personal experience. It's generational. And so the invitation is to hold the practice itself with kindness, with compassion. I have a, my own practice mantra when, when, when I go into retreat. If I can't, if, and, and so the invitation is to be loving in each moment that arises. But if I can't be loving in this moment, can I be kind? If I can't be kind in this moment, can I be non-judgmental? If I can't be non-judgmental, can I not cause harm? And you see where I'm going. And if I cannot not cause harm, can I cause the least harm possible? And so even in my own imperfections, whether I'm harming myself or others, even in my own failures, I can still be living my highest intentions. I can still be aspiring to the person that I would like to be, even though I make mistakes. And this is the invitation. You know, the mind wanders on when we're sitting on the cushion. It's okay. Just come back. No need to judge yourself. No need to judge the practice. And of course, Intention is not the outcome. It's not the end goal. We are called to follow our highest intentions with aspiring with our highest actions, doing the best we can. 
Intention isn't meant to be a passive practice. Because if we stopped with good intentions, then the road to hell is paved wide, right? But we have to start with those, with that purity of heart. Sayadaw Upandita, who's the teacher of many of us, said, without peace in our little worlds, crying out for peace in the big world with clenched fists and raised arms is something to think about. This is what, you know, so many of our, our elders uh, tell us that we need to be the peace that we see for the world. And so we aspire, we hold that aspiration in our hearts and our minds. So I want to look at that word, aspire, because it is intimately related to what we're doing. Aspire is related to your breath because it is related to the word respire. And both of them come from the root that means spirit. It comes from the root that is the energy that gives us our life. So respire is to breathe again. Inspire is to infuse yourself with energy. Aspire is to endeavor to achieve, endeavor to seek and reach. How does the clarity of your intentions as the mind settles lead to your highest aspirations? Do you intend to create more kindness in your life? Do you aspire to the possibility of the unconditioned heart? Do you intend to further your spiritual practice? Do you aspire to living in the freedom of the Dharma? We can't change the world without a clear aspiration coming from our mind and heart. Mind and heart in sort of Asian psychology are one. The, the emotional place, it's, it's just a different framework. It's not that one's right or wrong. That in Western psychology, we tend to divide the experiences. But, you know, the mind-heart chitta in Asian psychology is, is, is one experience. One of my aspirations these days um, my father passed about two years ago, and um, one of my aspirations these days is to continue learning from his life because it's a way that I still have him with me. And that that sense of loss is, is ameliorated and softened because, um, because he's still here. And one of the things that I dismissed when I was growing up, you know, he emigrated after World War II and he, as, you know, a pretty traditional Chinese man with a family, living through the McCarthy era and living through, um, um, you know, the civil rights period. He wasn't a person, because by the time the civil rights era hit the streets, he was in his mid-50s, and he wasn't the type to do that. Um, but throughout this time as a college professor, um, he was consistently, along with his other colleagues of color, paid 25% less than any of the other Caucasian academics. And um, he changed, he was able to change that in the mid-60s, when he became the head of the department. And that's how he lived his life. He didn't actually advocate or fight or... He just lived through the experience and when he had the other opportunity, he changed it. 
And I, and I say that I dismissed that because in my own experience, I, I kept asking him, well, why didn't you do something sooner? Why didn't you, you know, like, you knew that this was inequitable. And, um, and I never felt that, and you know, it could have been that I was reacting to my own, you know, internalized dismissing of, 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 of this, this Asian piece of, of cultural conditioning. I don't know. But I've really come to appreciate the path that he took and I actually aspire to the qualities that, it, that, that he had, still continues to show me around patience around perseverance, regardless of what the difficulty was. And that um, justice is still possible. There's a story of another, another father. So I went to Tallahassee to do um, uh, I was asked by actually one of the practitioners that had been coming to one of these retreats to um, bring a compassion practice to um, uh, communities of color in, in that panhandle of, of Florida, specifically around plantations and, and the legacy of slavery. And one of the things that um, Louise did was bring the metta practice to... Um, the lynching trees in the area, because the area had so many plantations, and it's 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 a legacy that has been uh, still not fully seen by that community. And part of my own research and 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 getting familiar with the territory was um, to do some reading and and. I found this book by Patricia Stevens Dew, who was one of the, um, she was uh, one of the organizers and, 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 and women who sat at the lunch counters, um, uh, desegregating, you know, the Woolworths lunch um, uh, counter. And um, in her book, she has this story. I might have mentioned that some of our jailers were verbally abusive towards us, but one had simply just been professional, neither more or less. Only days before we were um, to leave the jail, that jailer, a tall, mature-looking man whose name I don't know, unexpectedly showed up carrying a very young boy, perhaps as young as three or four. Since whites were restricted from seeing us, it was a shock to see the jailer bringing a white child that young. Once they were closer, we could tell that from the resemblance that the boy must be his son. The jailer stood in front of his cell with his son in his arm, and the boy leaned his tiny face through the bars to gaze at us. I braced for the worst, imagining what he was about to say, sowing the seeds of racism into the next generation. The jailer began to speak, pointing us out one by one. Now, these ladies are sisters, Priscilla Stevens and Patricia Stevens, and this other lady here is Barbara Broxton. He said to his son, say hello to them. Hello, the boy said. I know daddy has told you that only bad people go to jail. Well, you may be too young to understand, but these three ladies aren't in jail because they're crooks or because they're bad people. They're in jail because they're trying to change laws that say blacks and whites can't eat together. They want to be treated just like anyone else, and they believe in what they're doing so much they're willing to go to jail to make it right. So you try to remember that, okay? One day, you'll look back and realize how important it was for them to do this. The boy nodded soberly. Perhaps he understood, and perhaps he didn't. But that jailer could not have given a greater gift to any of us behind the bars, nor to his son. We cannot change the world without being clear 
about our intentions and aspirations moment to moment, regardless of how difficult the situations are, we can still remember our aspirations in this life. We can work to change the world because we cannot stand the harm that's being caused, because we hate the injustice, because we're un enraged by the unfairness of it. Or we can aspire to change the world because we love it so dearly, because we realize how precious this life is for each of us with all of its 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows, that we can't do anything else but alleviate the suffering of ourselves and others with our hearts as wide open as we can. These are two different aspirations. These are two different experiences. I want to say that aspiration is woven into the Buddha's experience. The Buddha didn't become the Buddha until he actually aspired to becoming the Buddha. So I'm going to go through this quickly because we're running out of time. But there is a story in, in the, so there are, if you believe in the cosmology, which you don't have to, but in the archetypal mythology, um, there are many Buddhas over eons of time, 24 to be exact, but who's counting? Um, and so it is said four incalculables and a hundred thousand eons ago, which is to say once upon a time long, long ago, <laughs> there was, in the time of the Dipankara Buddha, there was a, a man named Sumedha who came from a very wealthy family. And um, his parents deceased uh, really early in his life and, and um, um, uh, left him all this, these resources. And um, he had this thought, you know, my parents and forefathers amassed this wealth and they weren't able to take a single coin or jewel with them. Why should I now live my life as if I can take this wealth with me? And so he gave it away. He gave all of it away and went forth into um, homelessness, into practice. And he was meditating and, and deep in his practice. So he wasn't really concerned about worldly events. But the Buddha of his time, the Dipankara Buddha, was visiting close by. And so he overheard um, all the preparations, and, and so he went to participate, and, and he was given a job to smooth down a road so that the Dipankara Buddha and his disciples could walk over it. But before he could clean up the mud and, and fill the hole, the, the Buddha and his disciples were already approaching. And so um, he sensed that he could do a really great act of merit. And so he took off the clothing that he was wearing and put it, put it on the ground and laid on the ground so that he could be a bridge for the Buddha to, and his disciples to walk over. And he had this thought as he looked up to, to, the, um, to the, uh, the brilliance of, of the Buddha's presence. He reflected, if I want salvation now for myself, I can get it in the presence of this Buddha but why should I not aspire to become a Buddha myself in the future and thus save countless numbers of beings from the miseries of birth, old age, disease, and death? And he made this earnest wish to become a Buddha himself. It was a true act of bodhisattva, one who forgoes his own salvation in order to work for the liberation of the world. And as the Dipankara Buddha passed. He was able to read Sumedha's mind and understood his aspiration and predicted in 
for incalculables and a hundred thousand eons, he would become, arise as the Buddha Gautama Siddhartha, the Buddha that we know, that offered the teachings in this cycle of life. We make the aspiration and we don't attach to it because any attachment is suffering. And the Buddha made that aspiration and he continued to make that aspiration. I have a list of which I'm not going to read, but each time a Buddha arose, he made the aspiration as he was reborn in that, in that cycle. And it was said that he was reborn as a Brahmin, as a, as a king, as a hermit, the range of human experience. And yet he still aspired to become a vehicle for other people's freedom. So let's, I wanted to bring it in one last story to our world. That this is not about something that cannot happen today. And so I want to reference and honor um, the, the person who has the title Lady of No Fear, An Sang Su Chi. And many of you know her story and she's, you know, actually um, on her first trip outside of Burma for in, in decades. But for those of you who don't know the details, um, uh, she was incarcerated for 15 out of 21 years. And her recent um, uh, um, her house arrest lasted about seven years. Um, you know, she went, she was living this rather idyllic life in, 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 in England with her husband and children and went back to Burma to care for her ill mother and, and um, got, got involved in the effort for democracy and freedom. And part of the suffering that she experienced in her house arrest is, is that she was not able to see her children and her husband for decades. And in fact, um, uh, she was not able to be with her husband when he died of prostate cancer. The government's efforts against her were relentless over decades. And then in, um, I believe it was November of 2010 when she was released, um, the regime still ignored, you know, all of her efforts for rec reconciliation and, and dialogue. And um, they acted as if she didn't exist, even though she had, you know, masses of people that, that were um, supporting her. And so this is, comes from an interview that, that she gave during that time. Um, and when she was asked, you know, about this dismissal of her existence over and over again for decades. And she said, I wish I could just have tea with them every Saturday. A friendly tea, Suchi says of the generals. And what if they turned down a nice cup of tea? Well, we could always try coffee. <laughs> How much grace under pressure is that? How much aspiration that she has that actually has created phenomenal change, not just for Burma, but really as a role model for, for our world when she accepted the Nobel Prize, which is where she's traveling, one of her stops on this trip, she said, when I joined the democracy movement in Burma, it never occurred to me that I might be the recipient of any prize or honor. The prize we were looking for was a free, secure, and just society where our people might be able to realize their full potential. That's the prize. 
That's the aspiration that she could hold with such clarity for so many years. We can hold a vision of how we see the world and aspire to make our actions consistent with that vision. Bayard Rustin, who was the great organizer of Dr. King's March on Washington, again, working under really difficult circumstances as a gay African-American man in, in, a, in a time in which it was extremely difficult to be that, that identity. He said, God does not require us to achieve any of the good tasks that humanity must pursue. What God requires of us is that we not stop trying. That's the breadth of our practice. That's the collective embodiment of our intentions of being together, creating this possibility for transformation in our own life, in our world. This is the great journey that we continue to aspire on. And it's possible because the Buddha said he would not teach that which we could not do. This freedom is possible. So one of my personal aspirations is to have these teachings flow seamlessly like water into all of the communities that need freedom. One of my aspirations is that some of you will be instrumental in channeling these teachings in your own ways, in your own words, through your own life. And one of my aspirations is that happiness and contentment and freedom is possible in this life. What are your aspirations in this precious life? The Buddha's aspirations carried him through millennia. How does your aspiration carry you now? What life do you aspire to in the Dharma? Many thanks for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.